This is John Yablonski. Hey, this is Donald Copeland. Hey, Jerry Walker, class of 93. This is Shane Holloway. This is Laval Sanders. This is Food. And you're listening to Left Coast Pirates. Seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead, guarded by Ochefu, gets the step into the lane, goes to the bucket, layup, rolls around and in, and a foul! Whitehead ties the game! Pow! From Trenton! Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes! Coming to you just west of the Ward Place Gate, from San Diego, California, he is Mike Dizzy Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tommy Chilkaharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. How you doing today, Michael? Good morning, Tommy. Well, no one enjoys an angry podcast, so I'm going to try to remain composed today while also trying to keep you on your best behavior. But why do I have a feeling that's not going to be easy to do? Michael, if you would have told me that I was going to be angry after a 36-point win, I would have told you you were nuts. But yesterday, I was angry. I didn't like what I saw. But as one of our rules in podcasting goes, do not podcast angry. And I'm glad we didn't record this right after the game because we would have been real nasty. I'm not angry. Yesterday was a tune-up. So it's like kind of like you're working your way through a practice, right? You want to see certain things that the team is going to kind of build upon. You want to see different things that you can, uh, you know, take some positives away from. And that was a game that they probably should have, as we joked last time, doubled them up and run them out of the building. And it it took them a lot longer to get going. And there was a lot of sloppy play and a a lot of things that you could easily be critical about. So angry, no, over-analytical, absolutely. So today, Mike, we will overanalyze the Seton Hall Florida A&M game. John Fanta joins us to cover the battle for Atlantis. We review an announcement for next year's holiday tourney, and we take a look at the road to 2494. But first, Seton Hall 87, Florida A&M 51. Seton Hall jumped out to nearly a 20-point lead early, only to watch sloppy play reduce their lead. Halftime score, 36-24. The first half sleepiness crept into the second half. Florida A&M managed to cut the lead down to 9, 47-38 with 13-57 to play. Seton Hall then flipped the switch and ended the game on a 40-13 run. Miles Powell scored 23 points on 9 of 22 shooting. Roden had his first career double-double with a 10-12 night. Quincy McKnight had a good day with 14 points and 5 assists. Romaro Gill continued solid play down low with 8 points, 9 rebounds, and 3 blocks. And... We had a Torian Thompson sighting, which led to potentially the biggest cheer of the day as he drew an and one as he backed down a hapless FAMU defender. Michael, what did you see in this game? 
Oh, <laughs> you got you had to stick the Tori and Thompson bullet point in there to end the recap. Yeah, that's throwing me off right now. The the reality is Florida AM is a really bad team. Let, let me put it into context relative to beyond their record, which now sits at 0 and 5. They are basically right now ranked in the Ken Palm and you know analytics uh, that are put out there at 343 out of 353. And that was going into yesterday's game. A lot of people get turned off with all these rankings, these Ken Palm numbers, everything in it. But let's let's really put it into context here. In their previous four losses, they lost to USC by 29 points, to Hawaii by 13 points, to Pacific by 22 points. But they managed to play hard against that power from University of South Dakota and only lost by three points. See, this is where I, I can't stand when someone goes, ah, what, what is Ken Palm? I don't want to use that. I'll, the overanalytics is driving me nuts. You don't know anything about Hawaii, Pacific, South Dakota, or USC at this point in the year. So telling me they lost by 29 to one team, three to another, one game was on the road. The analytics of a Ken Palm kind of tries to put it into perspective with efficiency data, road analytics, overall score differential it just it it helps you put it into a a categorization the fact that they are in the bottom 10 in the country i I don't care whether it's close i don't care what's in the it's in the same ballpark for accuracy they're in the bottom 10 according to this analytics they're a bad team i know exactly what i need to know out of these four losses none of these teams i mentioned are going to do a damn thing this year and they have looked hapless against all of them except South Dakota. So my point is, because of where their ranking is, it it doesn't mean that you had to beat them by 50. It just means you are a superior basketball team when Seton Hall is conversely ranked in the top 20 in Ken Palm. So we're considered across the board one of the 20 best teams in the country. This is one of the 10 worst teams in the country we should not be on the same court together from a competitive basketball perspective. And it took us almost three quarters of the game to kind of impose our will and run them out of the building, which I know for most fans is, is unacceptable, but, but why the slow start? That's the issue. This always happens on these noon tip times when we play down to the competition, why the slow start? Mike, I, I don't know that we can even say it was a slow start. And I know you're going to say even the start they had wasn't necessarily all that good looking. But we were up basically by almost 20 points early in that game. The, the game was looking it to, to be going the way we expected it to go. And then all of a sudden, it just went into this blah mode. No, see, I, I disagree. I, I don't evaluate the start to a game just by the the result on the scoreboard. I, it, this is a tune-up again, right? So if it's a tune-up, I'm also evaluating the quality of play on the, on the floor. Are we going into the post? So I was encouraged when all of a sudden in the first couple possessions, they go to uh, into Romaro Gill. He has a nice little hook shot bank. I was like, okay, we're, go- we're going to work on some things today. And then it became a bunch of one-on-one on the offensive side of the floor. Yes, we got off to a good start on the scoreboard, but then all of a sudden we shot one of 11 on the back half of the first half. Because one-on-one basketball is not good basketball. Well, what caused that? So we've heard a few things. Uh, it potentially was the week off with no game since uh, the Sunday night game against St. Louis. After the game, we heard that Miles Powell came out and said, yeah, we had a bad week of practices. 
I mean, how do you have a bad week of practices, Mike? Who's that on? If the coach tells me they had a bad practice, that's one thing. You're telling me you sat back and watched an entire week's worth of bad practice. So doesn't at some point Willard sit there and say, hey, guys, what we brought out to the court on Monday, I don't want to see again on Tuesday or Wednesday. Now it's the end of the week and you're telling me you had an entire week that resembled productivity on the practice court that you're not willing to accept? How are you not making the changes as the practices progress throughout the week? I don't get it. Change the attitude. Well, I found some uh, interesting notes during the game. So they had a little interview segment with Kevin Willard that they uh, did a pre-production on. And he comes out and says, our motto this year is to stay humble and stay focused. Well, this team took FAMU for granted and they weren't focused on the game at hand either. So what's going on? Where is your motto? How are you following it? So... If you can't make the adjustments or you're getting a, you know the players to have difficulty adjusting throughout the week, I get it. You got a whole week off. It was a pretty emotional week the week before with the Michigan State game. Then you had to travel to a hostile road environment. You know They, they did pretty well overall. They're kids still. So I, I understand they have the, the physical fortitude to bounce back. But mentally going through an entire season, it could be an emotional roller coaster. I mean, this is why we have the January swoons. So having a bad week of practice, I can accept. But now you see where we played within the first 10 or 15 minutes of the game. Did you see any timeouts? Did you Did contradict you see- yourself, Michael? You just accepted a week of bad practices? I, I, I can't go back and change it now, but you're asking me what can we do in the middle of the moment relative to the coaching to get the the ship back on 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 course right right so it's the middle of the first half and we're going through this funk of a bunch of one-on-one sloppy play i didn't see any timeouts called did you did i miss those no it, it was it seemed to be the normal pattern of the media timeouts and stuff like that but there was no pulling the guys over and and reaming them out or anything of that nature we, we saw the in the hole you guys are playing too casual i, I that i mean we said this before. I, I don't expect him to go 180 and become a Bobby Knight, but show me some fire. I don't care if the camera's on you. I, I get it. You know, Willard, I think, is kind of just holding back in the in the huddle segments, kind of waiting for the, the camera light to go off because, you know, he wants to keep his huddle the way he wants to keep his huddle. But I'm sorry if it's in the middle of the game and it's not Florida A&M and it's, you know, it's a big uh, game against a Big East opponent, you're going to be holding back in the in the huddle segment. If you got to lay into your guys, you got to lay into your guys. I will repeat myself. It was a 36-point victory, but even after the game, Kevin said he was pissed. Now, let's go into the things that potentially pissed him off during the game. We had two starters that played very limited minutes, and we only had answers for one of them. What happened to Sandro? I'll let you go. You go go pick on Sandro. I mean, I'm what? I'm not here to defend Sandro today. So go right, ahead. Well, let let's put it into context. Some of his teammates were saying he's playing with some physical ailments. Now, when you ask Kevin during a press conference, he said he sat the second half because he was not been playing well. And boy, did he not play well in that first half for the game. Thirteen minutes, one of six shooting, one rebound, three turnovers. And we've got that Euro softness coming to the rim. <laughs> Why is it a Euro softness going to the rim? He was just soft at the rim. I, it's been a, and it wasn't one or two times. I, I counted like five times that he was soft at the rim. 
I'm kind of at a point where I'm not sure if Sandro is going to take this mega leap that people were talking about. Can he have a bad game here and there? Yeah, that, that's allowed. But the guy who's going to be the Robin to the Batman or you know, the guy who's going to be this consistent player that we all expected or the guy who's going to take the reins with Miles Kale and, and be like, you know, 1A, 1B next year. I'm not seeing it so far. I'm seeing a good game. And then I'm seeing a game where he disappears, which is reminiscent of what we saw last year. See, what's funny is you think I bang on Sandra all the time. I just don't see what other people see in the kid. People have always been saying he's the stretch four. He hasn't showed me he can shoot from outside, which is fine. You tell me he's going to be that making that leap. And I'm asking you why, because he took fat Italian kids to the hole during the summer. No, I don't see it. I think he's going to be a productive kid. I think he's going to give us what he gives. But as far as being that next guy, I don't see it. I keep telling people, last year, the second best player on this team was Miles Kale, and no one's freaking out over the reasons that he's not playing. He looked pretty good yesterday early. He was two of four in his shots. He only played 15 minutes. How does this happen, Mike? We'll come back to Miles in a second. Let's stick with Sandra and wrap up Sandra. You ask what people see. They see that he has the skill set to do a lot of things on the court. Yeah, yes, he shoots 30% from three, but if you're a stretch four, you have to be able to at least put the ball in the hole. He can shoot the three. And people were hoping that he would go from, you know, 30% to a more consistent, you know, mid thirties, close to 40% and be really, you know, effective out there or actually threaten you where you really have to respect the the high pick and roll pop. He has not done that, but he shows he can shoot. He shows he can put the ball on the floor and dribble coast to coast for a guy who is 6'11". He shows that he can finish with both hands. He shows that he can play in the mid-range. He shows that he can have a game where he can board against Villanova where he grabbed 18 rebounds. He shows you that he has the different skill sets to be this like five-tool type player, but he hasn't done it on a consistent basis, and he hasn't shown that he can do any one of those things at a really high level. He's been okay. So taking the next leap was expecting that he could take all these pieces of the puzzle and really kind of fine tune them and become not just a decent, well-rounded player, but become a possibly elite player because of the skill set he shows for his size at 6'11". You know what that's, he's shown me, Mike? See. He's shown me that he's going to disappoint guys like you. If he ends up with his career being like a 10-9 and 9 guy, I'm going to be happy. I'm going to think that's more than we should have expected from a three-star recruit coming in. You're all big on all these stars. I'm going to be happy with what he gives me because I'm not expecting a whole lot more. This is the problem. We're going to go down a recruiting rabbit hole in about two seconds. If he is my three-star recruit, but he is the second best player in my recruiting class. By the time he finishes his career, he can't be a 10 and a 10 and seven guy. He, he's going to be expected next year when he's a senior to be one of the focal points of this team. He cannot be a role player at that point. So if you want to sit there and say the three-star guy is not going to be a high level contributor until his junior or senior season, I can accept that. No, no issues. But we are in the junior season now. So now I expect higher level production than an average for his career of 10 and 7. If that's what his numbers average out to be because he was less productive as a freshman and a sophomore, that's fine. But he averaged 10 and 8 as a sophomore. 
It's not about the numbers. It's about consistently doing it now as an upperclassman. Mike, what am I giving you right now? I'm giving you the Sandro's truck because I'm seeing what I expected and you keep telling me you're going to get something else. No, but I'm, let's I'm go to something that I'm not getting something else right now. I, I thought we were going to, and I, based on a game like this and based on a game like Michigan State, I'm a little disappointed that we're not. Mike, let's go to something positive. We had a really good crowd. We almost had 10,000 folks show up at a game on early Saturday against Florida A&M. You get upset with the fact that we have an apathetic fan base. They come uh, to certain games that they choose to. When we have a non-conference opponent that is the cupcake, we end up with very sparse crowds. Where were they back in the day? I remember back in the day when I was a kid and we used to bring 12,000 to Continental for our Fairfield game. That's all I heard you say. So this is very reminiscent of that type of fan support, is it not? It's a good crowd, man. It was family day. They sold a lot more tickets. I'm impressed. I'm impressed. I mean, we're still not getting to the Continental levels and there's a whole lot of debate on why that happens, but this was a good one. And, And they came to cheer. I'll tell you what, man, they might have been cheering the wrong things, but they came to have some fun. They showered. A, a lackluster game. We have oh, a lackluster my game. goodness. Uh, and and the, uh, you get kind of bored, and maybe you've had a couple beers now. <laughs> By the time you get to the end of the game, they were looking for something to cheer about, and it wasn't going to be specifically us and our performance on the court. They decided their favorite player on the court for a little bit was the backup center for Florida A&M, who, let's just say, is a little heavy set. And when he scored a couple of late baskets, they came up with some big cheers for the kid. It was, it was a typical Bronx cheer. I was, I was actually kind of impressed. I was actually getting a good chuckle out of it. But it was not done in good taste. We'll, we'll leave it at that. Uh, sticking with what was not done in good taste, I I don't even want to go here. I don't want to go here, but I'm watching the game on TV and Florida A&M is bringing the ball up court and you cannot see the Seton Hall bench or the scorers table, but you just hear this eruption from the crowd. And this is right around the like 430 mark. And Sarah Kustoff's like, somebody's checking in. I, I didn't even need to know who. I didn't even know, need to know who. It was Torian Thompson. He's walking to the scorer's table, and the roof is going off the building, basically. I, I, have we gotten to this point? No, Mike. You know what? You're in the minority here. I keep telling you, Torian Thompson is my boy. I love myself some Torian Thompson. And he came in with a big eruption. And like I said during the recap, he had a nice little move where, you know, if we saw that more last year, would he not be playing more this year? He backed up this hapless poor defender and he got hacked and he threw up this miracle. And in true Torian Thompson fact, the miracle was answered and everybody lost their minds. Goofy circus shot. He threw up a goofy circus shot. He got hammered, Mike. He threw it up because he got hammered. That's what Uh, you're supposed to do when you got hammered. Get that and one. I I am not breaking down his post move against the garbage time player for Florida AMU. I'm I'm not not doing this. But I'll I'll tell you where I didn't like it. I didn't like the MVP chance that he got. I think that's in poor taste of recognizing your own guy. I mean, if Powell's shooting foul shots, for one, there is no MVP in college basketball. For two... If Powell's getting it, it's a different story because you're honoring him as being the best player. I think this is in somewhat poor taste here. Here's the issue. It was four minutes of garbage time. And when they brought the ball up the court, 
the fans were cheering for Thompson to get the ball on every possession. Every time he touched the ball, even on like a, a, a weave switch as they're kind of getting into the offense, right? The fans were cheering as soon as the ball touched his hands, like do something with it, shoot it. He got the treatment that the walk-on gets historically over the years. They cheered for him to be the walk-on. Shoot it whenever you want to shoot it, buddy. Go right ahead. This was a top 100 recruit out of high school that we previously recruited. We lost out to Syracuse. Shaw worked his butt off to try to get him to come back. We get a show cause for it. We get recruiting violation penalties. We lose a scholarship next year. And we're cheering for the kid like he's a walk-on. It's, it's just it's uh, kind of a sad, sad picture. Moving on. What is your overall reaction of this game, Michael? All right, let, let, let's get into some actual basketball stuff. It, it was just a sloppy game. It, it really was. There's really no other take away from this. At some point, we decided to wake up, you know, put our foot on the gas. We pressed a little bit. We were clearly the better team when we wanted to be, but for three quarters of the game, we were sloppy. I, I also took away with the fact that our bigs are not playing strong with the basketball. There was a lot of times Sandro, Rowe, and Ike are just not finishing strong around the basket, or they're not even gathering the ball strong around the basket as well. And I think that could be an issue down the road. It's not going to hurt us at this point against you know lesser opponents, but but that could be an issue. And then I'm also concerned about the three-point shooting. So I, I got some numbers for you again. I'm going to take uh, Powell and Kale out of this equation. Kale is seven for 14 on the season. I'd like to see him get some more shots. But the other three guys that I expect to contribute as players that can stretch the defense are obviously McKnight, Sandro, and Roden. And combined, they are 13 of 50 so far for 26%. Are you not concerned about that? I think we'll get better shooting out of Roden once he starts playing more in the offense. I know you were real excited about his double-double. We brought that up in the recap, but there are plenty of times when he's still taking any shot available to him as opposed to shooting it in the offense. When he's shooting in the offense, it looks good. It's going up. It's going through. He's got balance. His feet are set. There are actually two shots, especially during the game, that kind of bothered me that still make me wonder if he gets the team concept. There was one who I believe it was uh, kind of a slower, fast break where he catches the ball on the left. He literally takes two dribbles to the corner three, turns around and shoots it immediately. That's not a good shot at that point. I mean, he got the ball kind of out of position. He should have passed it out. Then there was another shot that he actually made. He kind of drove center, took a dribble, and took this turn, crazy turnaround jumper from the key, and it went in. Good for him, it went in, but there was no good reason for that shot to go in. I like that shot. I remember that play, and I said of to myself— Of course you liked it because he's your boy. It said to me that he has the ability to go get his own shot. Uh, that was a, I thought that was a very creative move, a little uh, dribble drive with his left hand, a little uh, dip his shoulder, spin at the defender, elevate, and kind of a little fadeaway jump shot from about the uh, the free throw line, elbow extended. We were in a segment of the game where it was all one-on-one basketball. I don't like the fact that we're playing all one-on-one basketball, but nobody else besides Powell has demonstrated the ability to get his own shot. A play like that for a young sophomore tells me as he develops, maybe he can become that guy. That's why a lot of people love the upside of Jared Roden. Is it a quality shot at the moment? No, no, it's not. But he has the ability to make it. Other I guys think, in this roster don't have that ability. 
But the problem is that's been his issue this season so far. He thinks he's got the ability to shoot at any point and it's not coming in the flow. And you can tell, you can tell when he's off balance and the shot's not going in. Sure, sure. So then Willard needs to sit there and say, hey, look, I love your energy. I'm going to give you the floor time. Your shots will come. Just, you know, be smart when you take them. I mean, he wasn't horrible today. It was four of nine. Here's what I like about Roden. I'm going to pick on Sandra now. Now I'm picking on Sandra. Let's see what you did to me. When Roden has a bad game on the offensive side of the floor, I don't doubt that he's not going to still stick his nose in there and go find me seven to 10 rebounds all of a sudden. I mean, we, we thought he had a really bad game against St. Louis relative to his offensive output for two for 11 that he shot, but he got you eight rebounds, which led the team. Today he led the team in rebounding again with 12. He's got a knack for finding that ball. It's a, it's a good talent to have. It's, we're five games into the season, and I don't think we still know what our offensive identity is, do we? Uh, I, I don't know. I really don't. Uh, I think they're trying to figure it out. Problem is... I think teams are going to continue to hone in on Miles Powell and, and make him just work overtime to, to get his looks. He'll, he'll get his looks. It's just a matter of what kind of quality looks he's going to get. The last two games, he's not been efficient. I don't know if that's on Miles. I don't know if that's on the defense is keying on him. It's not like Michigan State wasn't keying on him. He just had a game for the ages of that night where you could, just couldn't stop him. Right now, they are playing a lot of one-on-one basketball. We don't see this offensive continuity uh, that we want to see. We're not seeing the offensive sets that are getting other players open looks. My suggestion would be the following. Maybe we should just try to press more and create this up-tempo style and use our athleticism to our advantage. We have depth. We can run 10 guys at you this year. If you want to throw Torian Thompson into the mix, we can throw 11 guys at you and push the pace. Get looks in transition. Find ways to get guys the ball in, in the open floor and not have them bogged down in the half-court set. That might be what we need to do. And then also conversely, use your defense to create offense. Let's take those blocks and immediately turn them into transition looks. Tell the big guys, grab your board, turn, look, and let's get some long outlet passes to get things going. Miles is really good when he gets the ball with a full head of steam in transition. That's what I would suggest, but I would try to stay out of the half-court sets as much as possible. 36-point victory, and we're going to review the post-game quotes from Coach Kevin Willard. Can you imagine, again, that we'd be doing this? We'd be paying attention to the presser after basically a walkthrough win. Well, because you want answers. So, I mean, the final score, if you just read the paper the next day, is not going to tell you the true story. So the fan who watched the game, the fan who gets into it like we do, we kind of want to hear some of the perspective from the coach. Yeah, it makes sense. I, I'm not surprised that we are looking at the quote book for this game. Someone asked him about the slow start. He responds with the following. I think that's why I'm so pissed. We had a great crowd come out for a 12 o'clock game. We slept walked through 20 minutes. You can't sleepwalk when people come out and watch. It's unacceptable. Now, this well, is where me and you were going to disagree about ahead, this again. Ahead. You mentioned we were out to that big lead. You didn't like the way they were playing, but we were still imposing our talent on our opponent. It was the middle 20 minutes that looked like garbage. I just expected to see more timeouts. I think you could have even like just yanked all five guys off the floor and played one of those cards. For as frustrated as Kevin was with that performance, I just would have liked to seen him have more of an imprint on trying to change the course of that play. I didn't see that happening from his perspective. At the end of the day, he wasn't getting the energy level across the board from probably all 10 guys. So maybe he didn't have the right button to push. 
So it was just a collective effort for this, you know, initial slow start. I, I just feel bad for the fans. I don't think the little kids that come up for family day know the difference. They look up at the scoreboard and see a 36 point win and everyone's cheering and walking out with a victory. So eh, let, let's move on to the next quote. I'm going to let you cover this one, Mike. <laughs> of course you are. All right. So uh, on Shavar's Reynolds impact, I Willer goes, I thought he made some shots and got a little momentum going. I thought Shavar came in and gave us a really good boost of energy. We needed a little positive energy. Okay. Shavar hits his first three when we were up by 19 in the game. He hits his second jumper when we were up by 27. And then he hits another three when we were up by 35 with a minute and nine to go in the game. That sounds like a lot of garbage time offensive production. So was he talking about his defensive energy that he brought because i hope he wasn't talking about the eight points he scored well beyond that you know this is what drives me crazy because we watch the game we watch it from an analytical standpoint and most of the times we watch it again just to make sure we didn't miss anything along with the eight points he scored in garbage time he also had three of his rebounds during that period as well i know they credited him for a steal that I think Quincy actually uh, initiated and he grabbed when he was on the ground and tossed it, which was a good heads-up play by him. I really liked it that he was on the ground. He saw a guy cutting up the court and he got it to him to get that fast break initiated. I, I don't know that he needs this much credit for this game. I mean, I, I think you're doing him a disservice with what the kid's in there for by giving him this credit and then us looking at what he really actually did. I don't know. I, I don't want to bang on him because he's he seems to be a good kid. So so Kevin does call one timeout throughout the course of the second half. And what's funny is, I remember the play. The grandson for the Florida A&M coach, I think the kid's last name was Reeves, dribble drives on the left side, kind of crosses over, and hits a little pull-up fadeaway jump shot. Over who? Don't do it, Mike. Shavar Reynolds. I mean, he completely got beaten off the dribble, but Shavar is great on the ball defender for us. And at that point, Kevin decided to call, I believe is only in the middle of play timeout. I, 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 why are we doing this? Why are we going down this rabbit hole? I, I hate doing this to Shavar, but I don't think it was warranted for coach to even point that out. I, I just don't get it. I, it wasn't just Shavar that all of a sudden decided to wake up with 13 minutes to go in the game. Right now. No, and, and to be honest with you, I think uh, what was going on was we started pressing a little bit and we started getting turnovers. We did. We did. And that was, that was McKnight. And that was Powell. That was everybody pushing up to, you know, mid court. We were putting a lot of pressure on the ball for them to get the ball across half court. Absolutely. That that's what the difference was. Coach also made a point to talk about Quincy McKnight's aggressiveness. He said, Q should be our second leading scorer. He really should. With the amount of time he's out there and the ability he has to be a scorer. He defers a little to Miles, which is fine. But at the same time, we need a secondary scorer to step up and be consistent. And he's done that before. He's a fifth-year senior. He has the ability to do it. He's the guy that needs to do it for us. Now, I got two points about this, Mike. For one, wasn't that what everybody was saying, including Kevin, about Sandro? And two, I've got a huge problem right now with the disrespect that I'm seeing from my man, Miles Kale. Miles Kale was our second leading scorer last year. He played his best games in our biggest wins, and he got four shots yesterday. 
And he's been getting four shots, six shots, five shots. And this is a problem. Now, I read an article about the Sandro Miles friendship, and it sounds like Miles is kind of a quiet kid, kind of a kid that likes to stay back a little bit. I'm more worried about Miles Kale and his production if I'm Kevin Willard than anything else because Miles Kale should be our second leading scorer. All right, let me respond to both those bullet points. Sandro, I got no response. It is what it is. It's it's interesting to see the coach quickly deflect and move on to someone like McKnight. And maybe that's just him trying to take some of the spotlight off of Sandro. But you obviously dissected that quote and immediately brought it back to where it should be is, hey, what, what happened to these other guys that should have been the, the, the Robin to the Batman? All of a sudden, it's now changing. Is that to just deflect because they had a bad game or because you truly think that might not be their role this year? It's an interesting question. I think this is going to have to play itself out some more as we, we play the other games against the strong competition down in, in the Bahamas in the next week or so. My issue is with Kale. We were supposed to talk about Kale and, and the disappearing act for Kale in this game, only getting 15 minutes. I, I don't think Kale disappeared. I think Kale looked good on two or four shooting, but we don't find a way to get him involved in the offense. So why he didn't play the rest of the second half, that I don't understand. I I didn't zone in on Kale and see if he was missing defensive assignments in any capacity. I I don't know if you saw that, but he had a nice take with the left hand to the basket. He drilled a three from the corner again. Why don't we just try to find a way to take that output, which is two of four, and try to make it four of eight? Why not? With the amount of shots that everybody's taking, I don't see how he's not getting more. Back to your point of pushing the tempo, I think we start running a little more, and I think Miles Kale ends up using that athleticism and scores a few more buckets. Totally. Totally agree with you on that. All right, let's let's move on to this last quote. And you're, I'm, I'm looking through the notes here, man. You're just trying to get under my skin. I told you I was the one that was going to try to keep you in check today, and I'm going to read this next one, and I, I don't know where this is going to go. All right, so last quote from Willard's quote book that we wanted to touch on. I know why it's done, but it makes it very hard to win, to be honest with you. He's talking about the upcoming battle for Atlantis. You lose a four o'clock game and the NCAA selection committee just sees a loss. They don't see the fact that you got done at one in the morning and you had to turn around and play at four. So from that standpoint, I think it's idiotic. What the heck is he talking about? The context is the question was asked about his opinion on the schedule. And to be honest, he's already talking about what happens after they beat Oregon. They have the late game on the first night and for TV scheduling purposes. And that's all that it is. This is driven by ESPN and money. You're playing in their big money ESPN Thanksgiving Day tournament. They don't want the games on during dinner time on the East Coast, right? So people are probably going to sit down to maybe a six o'clock dinner, give or take. That game's going to start at four o'clock. And hopefully they're trying to wrap it up before dinner starts. They were not playing that game at 6.30 or at 9.30 at night. It just wasn't happening. So they moved the schedule up, and Kevin's complaining that it's a quick turnaround. That's what he's complaining about here. He has not even won the first game against the number 11-ranked team in the country, and you're complaining about the schedule for when you might get a chance to play Gonzaga. Are you serious? Well, again, you you put it into a little context. Let me take it in a little direction. Yes, the question was asked about his opinion on the schedule. And I'm going to say this. Let's not play innocent here about why the question was asked. The question was asked because everybody knows that Kevin Willard has hated every schedule he's ever seen. He's never happy with it, and you know he's going to talk about it. So why even ask it? I went and I served 
searched for some quotes about the battle for Atlantis from Dana Altman, who happens to be the head coach for Oregon. And you know what Dana said? And I'm going to paraphrase him here. He basically said, we're going to treat the battle for Atlantis as if it's the conference tournament and we're just expecting to play three games in three days. And then he goes into, we got a real tough game against Seton Hall coming up and that's all we're going to prep for because that's all we can prep for. Then he gives the team some nice kudos about its size, its being a senior-driven team, and it and he talks about Powell getting any shot he wants at any time. That's it, man. I didn't hear any excuses before you play the game, did you? And they're flying across country, so they're going to be three hours off their time frame. So I, I get it if the reporter was trying to set Kevin up. I don't, good or bad, I don't know. But at this point, you think Kevin might just change his MO on how he answers those questions? Why continue to go down this path of, Woe is me. It's different when the biggie schedule gets rolled out and you can just analyze only the hand that Seton Hall was dealt. Or if you want to break down the NCAA tournament seating and the pod that they sent you out to, like when a Whitehead's team got sent out to Denver at a higher altitude and they played a team from that region. Okay, you can be a little more specific because it's isolated to you. He looks a little ridiculous this time because there's a team across the court that has the same disadvantage as him that has to fly cross country with the time zone change as well for them. And I don't hear that team's coach complaining one bit. You're already given more excuses for what can go wrong. You're, you're complaining about the schedule. You're complaining about what happens if I lose that four o'clock game. And then you're complaining that the NCAA is not going to give you enough credit during the selection period. Just get past it. Go out there and win the darn tournament and stop complaining already. To be honest, I, I think it's just stupid. So speaking of stupid things, let's move on to our next segment, which is stupid stuff the announcer said. So the color commentator for this game was Sarah Kustoff, and she, she had a couple points that I want to have some fun with here. All right, her, her first quote goes, and this is in context to Miles Powell. He goes, his points are incredible, but you have to factor in the efficiency. He makes the right play, gets the ball to his teammates. He gets it within the flow of the offense. Meanwhile, there's a graphic on the screen as they're coming out of the media timeout that shows his output over the last three games. It shows the, the monster night he had against Michigan State. It shows his 6 of 18 versus St. Louis. And at that point in the game, showed his 3 of 10 effort versus Florida a and uh, I'm sorry, Sarah, but those, those graphics are not basically bearing that he's shooting the ball efficiently at that point. <laughs> Why would you go down that rabbit hole? Well, Sarah had herself a heck of a game yesterday. There was a point in the game where she was complimenting the Seton Hall inbounds under the basket plays and how efficient they are and how good they are. I don't think she's watched many of our games, Mike. I, I got one more. I, this was kind of funny at first, but then I was thinking about it. She goes, uh, Romaro Gill's at the free throw line, and they put up those graphics about like three things you need to know about Romaro Gill. And... He basically says that as his last uh, funny anecdote is he's the best chef on campus. And Sarah goes, maybe the next time we are on campus, we can have Romero cook us a meal. I'll buy the groceries. Unless she knows that her and Dave Sims have the assignment for the Prairie View game. I I'm going to go out on a limb and say 
She doesn't get to call another Seton Hall game this year. I'll tell you this, Mike. She should stick with what Romaro Gill's doing on the court and not what he can do in the kitchen. Because, whoa, did you see that? Goes to Romaro Gill, man. So a guard for Florida A&M, Bryce Morang, beats Q into the lane and goes up for what was supposed to be a tomahawk throwdown. And he was met in the air with a ferocious block by Romaro Gill that got me screaming out loud, Mike. Normally, I try to give you a spin and say how that, you know, whoa, did you see that moment is also impactful for the rest of the game. It, it wasn't this time. This was just one of those sit back in your seat and go, damn, that, that, that was one hell of a block. I'm telling you, man, he's on his way to winning that defensive player of the year. He keeps this up. He's winning it. We're not going to be looking for any moral victories coming up this week. But what are Seton Hall's actual chances? We reached out to one of the friends of the podcast, John Fanta, to join us because who better to have the hardest working man in college basketball help us figure out what's going to happen. Please welcome to Left Coast Pirates Live, friend of the podcast and Fox Sports One's own, John Fanta. John, how are you tonight? That's the best introduction I have ever gotten, Tom. That was fantastic. <laughs> Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> Happy Thanksgiving to you too, Fred. So, John, where are you calling in from today? Hoboken, New Jersey, uh, here right in the heart of the Garden State. Well, John, thanks for joining the show. Glad to have you back on. How have things been going for you covering Fox College Basketball and the Big East Digital Network? Everything's been great. Uh, you know, to have this role with the Big East Digital Network and get a chance to cover 10 programs that are all unique in their own ways, you get a chance to see some programs that come to mind right off the bat, the way that Seton Hall has climbed all the way onto the national map, uh, the way that DePaul has actually evolved as a program and now off to an unbeaten start. I think they're an intriguing story in the country. And then I think that there's some middle teams this year. I'm curious to see what they're made of. Uh, Marquette with Marcus Howard, they lose the Hauser brothers. And so there's that question mark of how are they going to be able to retool and potentially reload? If you think about Howard, my big take on the Golden Eagles in the Big East is he's done just about everything except win in the NCAA tournament. Kind of reminds me of Seton Hall senior class going back into 20, 2018, going into that tournament. They hadn't been able to get that tournament win. They ended up getting it over NC State. So it's a lot of fun to cover the Big East Conference. That's just two or three storylines. We could go with all 10. And then on top of that, to do games for Fox Sports, it's a privilege to cover this league for Fox and looking forward to having more games along the way. I've got St. John's and Wagner this upcoming Saturday with Sarah Kustak, and she's a joy to work with, uh, somebody that works with Ian Eagle night in and night out on the Nets. So she's she's awesome to work with. And uh, St. John's, another intriguing case. They end up falling short to Arizona State, but there's been bits and pieces where you say to yourself, okay, maybe Mike Anderson was the right hire. Uh, long answer, but the short one is, how could you not love covering the Big East Conference across all sports, but primarily in hoops, it's a joy. Now, this season, we started doing Behind Enemy Lines, where we've been, been bringing on local reporters and podcasters to preview the games that Seton Hall is going to play that week. Now, we thought, who better to bring on than John Fanta for the Battle for Atlantis? But before we get into that, John, what are some of your thoughts about how Seton Hall has started this season? 
Well, I think the immediate thought is this, the length of this team competes with anybody in the country. When you're one of only nine programs in college basketball to have two seven-footers, it just it shuts out to you. When you're watching Seton Hall, the general sports fan, uh, my dad, who doesn't watch a ton of college basketball, texts me during the Michigan State game. A lot of people are watching that game. They're perusing. says, whoa, Seton Hall's got size. I'm so used to Michigan State having size. So I think that that's the thing that stands out, guys, is this team has the tools down low to compete with anybody. On the other side, offensively, what do I make of the start in the season? Okay, we knew Miles Powell could be the national player of the year. He's living up to the billing. The biggest question for Seton Hall all season long is going to be the same one. Who's number two, and is that going to be consistent? Can they avoid the January swoon? If they do avoid the January swoon, it's because they have consistency from a number two score. I think that Sandro Mamukalashvili continually needs to be that guy for them just because, guys, he causes so much pressure on a defense because of his length and his ability to stretch the floor. So I think the key for Seton Hall is still the same that we would have said going into this season, but, guys, what do I make of the start of the season? This team has validated the hype thus far with the opportunities they've had. You want to beat Michigan State, of course, but in that game they showed they can play with the big boys. Now the question this week is, can they beat a big boy or two? All right, Jonas, let's let's talk about one of those big boys. Our opening matchup down in Atlantis is against number 11-ranked Oregon. They're out to a 5-0 start. Ken Palm 16th in the, in the analytical ratings. They're predicted to win the Pac-12. And although they've reloaded with a lot of younger top talent, it seems like they're getting their biggest production from their top three seniors. Tell us what you like about Justine, Mathis, and Pritchard. What I like about them is their perimeter threats. I mean, this Oregon team can light it up from beyond the arc. So I think something's got to give because when you think of Seton Hall and the way that they can guard out on the perimeter, they get up in you. Quincy McKnight does a great job of that. Miles Kell, we know that's what he brings to the table is defense. That's why Kevin Willard has said many times it's hard to take Kell off the floor. But what do I like about these Oregon Ducks? It's, it's that they can light it up from beyond the arc. Uh, they're shooting 43% from three this year. They shoot 52% from the field. So you think about it. They shoot at such a high percentage. This Oregon team is going to be tough to stop offensively. It's a tall assignment for Seton Hall. Here's the good about this matchup from a Pirate perspective. Oregon isn't this team that just feeds off turnovers. In fact, their turnover margin is negative 1.2 on the year. I'm going a little bit advanced numbers, but let's face it. They turn the ball over about 13 times a game. They force about 11 and a half. What's Seton Hall's Achilles heel? At times, it can be turnovers. So I think that going into this matchup, you say to yourself, okay, Oregon's not a team that turns people over a ton. They shoot the ball extremely well. And Anthony Mathis, guys, he's 20 for 31 from three on the season. I mean, this kid could go off at any moment. You have to spend enough time worrying about Pritchard, nor alone Mathis, who can light it up. But besides that, I don't sense that Oregon is going to give Seton Hall a lot of problems on the interior. I think what this comes down to is Seton Hall being able to defend Oregon out on the perimeter keeping them from those hot stretches. And then for the Pirates, again, like sometimes games come down to star matchups and who's got the better player. And Atlantis is a prime example of that because 
you've got quick turnarounds. But in this first game, Peyton Pritchard, over 19 points a game, rebounds the basketball fairly well. On the other side, Miles Powell, an average over 30 points per game uh, the week beforehand, this Florida A&M win, and is capable of a 40-point night. So this is an incredible star matchup between two players who know what it takes to get to the NCAA tournament. And I just think that when I look at Oregon on paper, I don't see a great rebounding team. I see a team that rebounds by committee, and I see a team that shoots the ball tremendously well. So for Seton Hall, value the ball. It's not like Oregon's a, a team that forces a lot of turnovers. But on the other side, you better be ready to guard Oregon on runouts, on drive and kick. And sometimes the first step of that is being able to just guard the drive. Because if you allow them to drive, it can condense everybody, and then they're kicking out for open threes. And I thought in the Michigan State game, yes, Michigan State, a team that wasn't shooting the three-point ball well, was able to hit some big threes in that game. But I also thought they were open looks. So Kevin Willard, one of his calling cards, like over the years statistically, Seton Hall's pretty good defensively guarding the three. They have to do that in this game to win because there's a lot to like about Pritchard, and Mathis. All right, John. So you mentioned a lot of the offensive firepower that Oregon has. You make reference to Miles Powell and you know the hot streak that he's gotten off to. Both teams are averaging 80 plus a game. Are we expecting a shootout here? Yes, I, I think so. You're playing the game in a ballroom. I mean, let's simplify things here. And you may say, what the heck does that mean, John? This is a neutral site game. Uh, everything's going to get condensed in terms of the crowd back and forth. You know, you're not playing in a big arena. And in these types of games, sometimes we see them take on a life of their own. Uh, of course, the shooting background is a little bit different, but I'm expecting a high-scoring, punch-for-punch, blow-for-blow type of affair. And I know this might sound a little crazy. I think that Seton Hall in Oregon has a chance to be the de facto championship game in the battle for Atlantis. Because I could see the winner of this game going through the rest of the competition because of just how tough it will be to win this matchup. But... I look at the scoring capabilities. I look at the fact that Oregon's shooting well over 40% from three, and Miles Powell is a walking three-point bucket. Get ready for the ball to be flying in the Bahamas. <laughs> well, it's going to be hard matching this, but a potential second-round opponent is going to come out of the Gonzaga-Southern Miss matchup. Gonzaga's number eight in the country and ranked number seven in Kempom. It's really not played anybody all that impressive, potentially Texas A&M, and they beat them handily. Gonzaga's 6'10 senior forward Killian Tilly returned the other night from injury to go 15-8. He's really been hampered by an ankle and foot injuries and is just getting back from knee surgery in the preseason. How much of an impact do you think he can make if he's healthy? Well, I think that he can make enough of an impact that at the very least he's taken up space. And one thing for, with Seton Hall's front court is they can pretty much challenge anybody defensively at the rim. But guys, one thing with this team is Romaro Gill and Ike Obiagu have had trouble at times catching the ball in the interior and then being able to finish. So I think that Tilly, at the very least, his presence is imposing. It begs the question, what is in the water out in Spokane? Or what are they eating out there? <laughs> Because they just breed trees. I mean, there's just something about Mark Few in an era where we all talk about, oh, the traditional center. And look, some of their big guys can stretch the floor. I'm sorry, Gonzaga and Mark Few's made a living off of just breeding big men year after year. If you ask a general sports fan about Gonzaga, they're going to say, oh, man, they've got some big size. And you know what? They'd probably be right. If there were a family feud category about Gonzaga, 
that would be the number one answer. But for this Gonzaga team, here's what stands out. You've got Philip Petrusev. You've got Killian Tilly. You've got a couple of guys there that make a high impact. Now, they're only averaging about seven threes a game. You don't need the three-point ball, though, when you do a great job getting it inside, and sometimes your best form of offense is putting the ball back in. What concerns me, if I'm a Seton Hall follower, is Zach has got six guys averaging in double figures. I don't care who your competition is. I don't care if you're playing Florida A&M or you're playing Duke. The fact is, you've got six players averaging in double figures thus far this season. That is one scary scout when you're sitting in the film room and your coaching staff's going through each guy on video. It's a lot to unpack there. So I think in this matchup, what I'll say is it's a good thing that Seton Hall's playing Oregon and not Gonzaga first, because I'm not trying to say anything about, about Oregon's coaching staff. And I think that, that Dane Altman does a great job, but Mark Few on prep time, he's a very dangerous guy. Uh, fun fact here, ask Kevin Willard last year about coaches that he takes stuff from, looks at, watches a lot. His first answer, Mark Few. Now you're wondering where he gets all these trees, man. It's that clean left coast living. John, you got to come out here, man. It's all right. Now we mentioned earlier that they really haven't tested themselves yet in meeting Gonzaga. Do you think the Zags appear worthy of their top 10 ranking or is their second round opponent they're more of a first measuring stick. No question about it. I mean, they got a friendly draw starting out with Southern Miss, which it's actually a little bit staggering just because they're not a power conference team. And typically the power conference teams, at least from my knowledge of watching these uh, exempt events, typically they're the ones that are getting the opportunities. Let's get back to Gonzaga. So here's the thing with the Bulldogs. They got a friendly draw on this. Their first real test is going to be Seton Hall advantage Seton Hall if Seton Hall faces them uh, in this tournament, which we are assuming in this preview podcast that that could happen. So looking at the Bulldogs, yes, they are a product of what we see in the AP poll every year. Your namesake, your brand results in you getting your standing. It's how it works. It's just, it's just how it works in college basketball. So I think that when you think about Gonzaga, they're, they're a dangerous team. They're a Final Four contender. We don't know how good they are yet because they really haven't been tested by anyone. Seton Hall has been. And if Seton Hall comes off a win over Oregon, there's two schools of thought here. One, which team's going to be more well-rested going into this second game if Seton Hall and Gonzaga meet? It's going to be Gonzaga because you, don't, you just don't see Southern Miss drawing a, a tough game out of that. Or two, Seton Hall has taken bigger punches than Gonzaga, and then we see that result and some good things for the Pirates. So I want to see how Seton Hall would handle Gonzaga's length. I'm expecting tectonic plates to move out in the Bahamas because you have Tilly, Petrusev, Roe Gill, and Ike, Biagu, Ike Obiagu. You put those four at a Thanksgiving dinner table, that turkey is gone. Not to mention Samuels and Sandro being 6'11", both. So, I mean, we've got some trees ourselves. Great point on Tyree Samuel. You guys follow this team day in and day out. I think that he's the Seton Hall player that has the highest range to grow from this point right now to March. When you talk to the coaching staff and you talk to guys on that roster, Tyree Samuel is going to have a game this year. You can mark me down where he goes for 16, 18 points, and everybody's like, where did that come from? Don't be surprised. I think this kid will come into his own. He's got too many intangibles to not. 
So I don't disagree with you, John. And I, I saw a lot of press clippings after the Florida AM game that, you know, the person to watch from that performance was Samuel. Is it too much pressure to put on him to see that kind of performance that you described take place in the next three to four games? I think so right now. Yeah, I just think it's too early to expect that type of a performance. But we all know in college basketball, games take on a life of their own. I think the player you could expect that performance from is it Jared Roden because Kevin Willard said it after the Florida A&M win that Roden is starting to find his rhythm, starting to be the player that he was before his injury that sidelined him for much of the preseason. So I really like Roden's capabilities. I think Anthony Nelson at some point in this tournament this week has to have a game that he really controls over a portion of time. The thing with Anthony Nelson is offensively, he's got it. I mean, he's just got this smoothness to his game. But at times, he can be a bit of a liability on the defensive end of the floor. So for Seton Hall, they have to find a way to almost cover that up. But if you know Kevin Willard, you know this. If you're not willing to guard or you're not guarding, you're not going to spend a whole lot of time on the floor because he can compensate for a lot of things. One thing he doesn't like to compensate for is a lack of defensive effort. And that's why the Oregon game's important. And then I think for Gonzaga, my one concern would be is that Gill and Obiagu have gotten into foul trouble. And what does Gonzaga do? Well, they just pound it on the interior. It's a lot to ask for Mamou Kalashvili and Samuel to maintain the physicality inside if it gets to that point. All right, John, let, let's keep moving forward here. So opposite the draw for Gonzaga is Southern Miss. So far, they started off the season uh, one and three. Uh, they had a game against William Carey. I, I don't have the result met in front of me, but prior to that game, they were Ken Palm ranked 228. On paper, they are clearly the inferior team participating in this tournament. In, in most likelihood, Gonzaga is going to move on in that matchup. My question to you is, how disappointing of a tournament does this become if the Pirates don't get past Oregon and kind of get faced with the Southern Miss matchup? It gets defined by the third game is what it does. There's no question it's disappointing. I think the, the question of how disappointing Look, they can't control their draw. And here's the thing. If you put the eight teams in, in a line, in a single file line, and I called you both in for questioning, and I said, hey, which one of these doesn't belong? If you didn't say Southern Miss, we'd have to check your blood alcohol level. <laughs> because here's the thing. Southern Miss is the odd man out in this field. And I'm not trying to be mean towards Southern Miss, but they're the odd man out in this field just on paper. So I don't think for Seton Hall that it's it's something that you say, oh my gosh, like this is terrible if they end up facing Southern Miss. It's very disappointing. But then what happens is your third game of the multi-team exempt event becomes a must-win game. It always does in this situation. They're going to have to win that third game if they lose the first game. And for Southern Miss, you're talking about a quad four potentially game. Possibly, quad three, absolutely. Quad four. I mean, that's what you're talking about here for a team that's in the back end of the country. So for Seton Hall, that, those types of games don't benefit them at all. The one good thing is, let's keep in mind here, this week does not define the season. And when you have Maryland, uh, when you have Iowa State at Iowa State, could have them twice this week, could happen. When you've got those other tests on your schedule, you've got room to get those types of wins. Just look what happened going in the Kentucky game last year with a, a far worse team, I think, at that stage, or at least a team with so many more question marks than this one, and they found a way to win that game. But the expectations are raised. I mean, for Seton Hall, if you're going to be a top 15 team, man, 
it's it's a lot to ask for because it's Oregon and they're a fellow top 15 team. But I think for Seton Hall to be treated nationally the way that they aim to be treated, they would really help their cause by beating Oregon on Wednesday. I think it's as big of a measuring stick as a team has in non-conference play. It will be the, the, the game that we look back on when non-con play is over, I think, and say, okay, this is what I think of this Seton Hall team based on this game. I do oh. think Without a doubt, I, I just think there's this, you know, revisionist history that might play out where we've lost to Long Beach State, we've lost to Florida, and then you followed up with a second round matchup against Bradley and Quinnipiac. It just kind of deflates the whole, you know, RPI buildup and the net ranking. It just, you had bigger aspirations going into those tournaments. And if there's aspirations on the table now, I mean, the sky's the limit with three top 10 opponents potentially in front of you. True. I did talk to Matt Norlander of CBS about this, and he said to me that Seton Hall could very well benefit by their non-conference scheduling if they get to those 20 wins or whatever it might be, if it comes more in league player, wherever, however they get there. He said, national writers, national media, of course, of course they lead a committee or people making decisions. I, I, I don't care what anybody says, guys. There's a human nature to all this stuff. You can go off any metric you want, but perception ends up being reality in a lot of ways just because what, what you think of a team, you could say, oh, Seton Hall, they faced a daunting non-conference schedule. We should not discredit them for doing that. Like, there's ways you could turn this, and Matt said that he thinks Seton Hall could get some special treatment based on the fact that they're testing themselves to this level. But look, all points aside, you're going to have to win some of these games at some point. And Wednesday is a prime opportunity to do it against a team that I think, as much as Oregon is very good, I think it's a very winnable game. It, it, because I just look at Oregon, I, I see a team that shoots the three ball well. Look, if Seton Hall knows any team that shoots the three ball well, it's Villanova. I would just say that this Oregon team, I would rather play them now and not sometime in March. No question about it. Uh, zero question about that. But to go back to the original point, you don't want to end up facing Southern Miss in this tournament. Those are the circumstances Seton Hall wants to avoid. Never has there been such a high ceiling and a low basement from game to game in a multi-team event like this one for the Pirates, at least in recent memory. Because, my goodness, does the ceiling go from high to the basement going to low. It's not as if, like, when they were in the Barclays Center for the Coaches versus Cancer event and they had uh, Oklahoma beat. And if you remember, they lose that game. Michigan State, right? Michigan State was on the docket. They would have gotten number one Michigan State, but they still faced Virginia Tech and they ended up winning that game. On the flip side, this goes from Gonzaga to Southern Mississippi. You don't need me to tell you how sharp of a contrast that is. So on the other side of the bracket, John, comes the blue blood of the tournament. You've got North Carolina facing Alabama. Now, North Carolina's number six. They're 4-0. Their only true win against any kind of opposition was against Notre Dame. And when you're thinking of North Carolina, Cole Anthony's name has got to come to the forefront. He's currently averaging 23 points, 8 rebounds, and almost 5 assists. He's expected to be a top pick in the upcoming draft. I'm going to put you on the spot here, John. Who's the best player in college basketball at this tournament? Cole Anthony or Miles Powell? The best college basketball player is Miles Powell. Paul Anthony might very well be the best NBA player down the road, but Miles Powell is a superb college basketball player. That's my answer to that question. It's short and sweet here. So the rest of the team has also been is young and has been hit hard by injury early this season. Do you see the Tar Heels getting tripped up prior to getting to the title game? 
No, I don't. I, I just I not with a player uh, as explosive as Anthony, but on top of that, I just don't think that the capabilities on their side of the bracket of Alabama and then of a, of an Iowa State team that's that's rebuilding Michigan. Michigan's an interesting team in that they've got some good size. John Teske's a really dangerous player on the interior for them. And Xavier Simpson, it feels like he's been around for six years. So they could get tripped up there. But I just think with Carolina, you know, you look at what they've got beyond Anthony. They're a young team. There's no question about that. And they have not shot the ball well from the perimeter. Looking at them on paper, they're only shooting 32% from three. You can't do that and beat some of the high majors that you're going to be facing. They're going to have to, to figure out a little bit who they are. Now, look, they, they can rebound the ball about as well as anybody in the country. I mean, what stands out to me about Cole Anthony is he's averaging eight rebounds a game, and they've got three other players averaging at least eight rebounds a game along with him. How many teams have four guys that average eight rebounds a game? I know it's early, but that's pretty damn scary when you think about it. So for Carolina, uh, on top of Anthony, they've had Garrison Brooks uh, in there with 12 points a game. It's mostly been the Cole Anthony show. I'm interested to see if Carolina's going to come out with a battle for Atlanta's title. Uh, they need Armando Bacot. They need Justin Pierce, Christian Keeling. Like They need those complimentary guys to support Anthony. To go a little further on your question about Miles Powell versus Cole Anthony, there's no question. Cole Anthony has had a tremendous start to his college career and he's going to be a top tier NBA player but on the other side Miles Powell has a greater body of work in college basketball has proved himself more in big games we have to see if Cole Anthony is going to do that this week you know they've got the win over Notre Dame but that's about it I go off the whole body of work for Powell I look at the fact that he scored well over 30 against Michigan State I think it's wrong right now to be like okay Cole Anthony's a better college player than Miles Powell I think body of work and shot-making ability, I think the will. One thing you can't measure is experience as well. When North Carolina goes through a moment of adversity this week, is Cole Anthony the one bringing them together? Or is it something that we saw with LSU, Ben Simmons? Is it a personality of, I'm going to get mine? One thing about Miles Powell that people don't take into account, he makes everybody better, and he has this embracing ability to draw his teammates in when they need him most. That's powerful. That's what makes him a better all-around player. He lives for the big moment. He leads, but he does it in a way that brings the guys around him together. So going into this week, Miles Powell is the better player. North Carolina could be waiting in the title game, and Cole Anthony versus Miles Powell is worth the trip to the Bahamas alone. Left Coast Pirates has the travel budget to just go out for that. <laughs> John's got the de facto championship game, Seton Hall, Oregon. He's got must-see must television, Seton Hall, North Carolina. I love it. All right, let, let's move on. So North Carolina's opponent in the first round is Alabama, currently 2-2. Two and two. Ken Palm, top 100, checking in at 75. They've had some bumps in the road early in the season, losing their home opener by one to Penn. Then they traveled on the road to Rhode Island and lost by double digits. Alabama seems to be clearly trying to find their way early with a young team. Three of their top scorers are all underclassmen, as well as 10 players on the roster are freshmen or sophomores. Uh, considering the new net evaluation, John, for a neutral court game, it scored the following way. Quad one is a team ranked one through 50. Quad two is 50 through 100. And quad three is 100 through 200. There is a possibility if Seton Hall were to lose to Oregon, beat Southern Miss, they could match up with Alabama as that third matchup for the for the tournament. Where do you see Alabama grading out throughout the season? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that this is a fringe quad two, could fall into the quad three category. Um, but I, I think for a team that's this young, you know, you, you probably are on the side of caution, right? And you could see this team falling out of the, the top 100, as you say, just because of where they stand. But look, there's a long way to go to determine that. The fact is they're far from a quad one in a tournament field that features several quad ones. So I think they're a fringe Q2, Q3. I think for Alabama, look, Nate Oates is a new coach at the helm. They're trying to figure out who they are. Um, thus far, you know, they get past Furman 81-73. Rhode Island's a good team, but you give up 93 points to Rhode Island. Like, that stands out to me. Defensively, it looks like they're trying to learn who they are. And they give up 81 points to Penn in a one-point loss. Like, those, those types of numbers, they jut out at you that Alabama hasn't been there defensively thus far. Uh, Kira Lewis Jr., fantastic player. I mean, the, the sophomore has really come onto the scene and been a dynamic scorer for them. I think that Lewis is uh, a big-time talent for them. But beyond him, Jane Shackelford, good presence for them uh, at six foot three as well. They've got guards that can score the basketball pretty consistently. But with the way that Seton Hall defends between McKnight, Kale, I understand that Powell might not be a a great defender per se, just because he's an amazing scorer. And sometimes as a scorer, you have to pick and choose your spots. I, I don't think there's a whole lot that Seton Hall would have to be concerned about in this matchup at surface level. Considering that when Seton Hall plays teams that aren't all that special defensively, when the Pirates can get theirs on offense, how good do you guys feel about Seton Hall's chance in the game? Oh, I, I think Miles' defense is a little bit underrated, to be honest. I think he picks his spots, like you said. I, I agree with that. I, I I think going into it, like John Petty impressed me last year. He did. He impressed me a lot. John Petty's their six foot five wing man who kind of plays like he's six foot eight. Like he's a guy that can get a double double for them. He he can get rebounds, make things happen. But if you're Alabama, you're giving up easy buckets. You're really not showing much resistance defensively. That could result in some real troubling things because Cole Anthony could end up feeding off of that in the tournament opener when those two teams meet Tar Heels and Crimson Tide. Now, the next matchup on the docket is one you already mentioned, Michigan versus Iowa State. Now, Michigan has a special space in my heart for a lot of hatred, as all Seton Hall fans should have for it. They're undefeated on the season so far, and they've even beaten Creighton in this early season. Michigan is led by four upperclassmen that aver- that all average almost 30 minutes per game and all score in double figures. Do you believe that Michigan can be a bit of a sleeper team to win this tournament, John? Yes, I do. I I do think that. I I think by the same token, Michigan could be a team that goes the other way as well. They're kind of the X factor of this entire tournament because you've got a new coach in Jawan Howard and he comes home to Michigan. He's still trying to fully learn his team. But one thing I know with this Michigan team, guys, is they've got some legit upperclassmen post players. Between Isaiah Livers and John Teske, you've got two guys that can combine for 40 of your points And Livers can stretch the floor, and anytime you've got a guy at the four spot that can stretch it the way he can, that can cause problems the way he can, that's that's a problem for teams defensively. Uh, I think I think that Michigan's real dangerous in this because I like them to beat Iowa State. Uh, I I think that the Wolverines just to me have more firepower than an Iowa State team that's, that's trying to find itself in many respects. But between Livers and Teske, that's a scary duo down low. They don't turn the basketball over. They shoot 52% from the field. So when you look at them on paper, you say to yourself, okay, they've got two bigs, so they rebound the ball well. They know how to control the post, 
and they shoot at a pretty high rate, those things typically bode well for a team in a tournament setting. So I think with Michigan, even though they've got a new coach, they've got guys who know how to get it done and who know what it takes to get deep in the NCAA tournament. I mean, it wasn't that long ago at all. You think about the job that John Beeline did, what was it, two years ago that the the Michigan Wolverines, you know, found themselves in the national championship game. So for, for Michigan, this is a program that has bred success. That, to me, pays off in settings like these. And to start the season, their front court has been really solid, a perimeter threat in livers and an interior presence in Teske. Now, outside of Teske and Livers, they also have a point guard named Xavier Simpson who's averaging double figures and nine assists a game in this early season. How do you think our bigs and Hugh matches up with these guys? Well, I think that the key to this matchup would be Sandro Mamoukelashvili versus Isaiah Livers. When teams employ a four-man that's going to space the floor, Seton Hall's going to have to counter that with Sandro at the four coming out. Or maybe it's Roden, who guards well. I mean, I thought that Jared Roden's coming out party last year was actually at the Wooden Legacy. They used him on defense, he produced. But that would be the key for me. Like, Livers does what Sandro does in many respects for Seton Hall. So how does Seton Hall compete? I don't get too concerned about front court matchups with this team, at least in the early season I haven't, because I think Seton Hall matches up well with those teams. I just think that the question with facing a Michigan is, is Seton Hall avoiding offensive loss are they avoiding those cold spells where they fall into turnovers because here's the thing xavier simpson is not turning the basketball over michigan doesn't turn the ball over they shoot 52 percent they've got good size they've got a point guard if you're seating hall you got to be who you are keep the turnovers down play through number 13 because against michigan or against iowa state and i think against anyone in this tournament Seton Hall is the best player on the floor. Avoid turnovers. Utilize your front court in the ways that you can and find that number two score. Good things are going to happen. But against Michigan State's bigs, it would cause a wrinkle. But I think if Quincy McKnight can manage the game, doesn't have to outplay Xavier Simpson, but has to manage the game, that is a key variable in a potential Seton Hall-Michigan showdown, which would be fascinating for the Pirate faithful to take in it wouldn't exactly be an afternoon alongside the Bahamas Beach. Oh, be still my heart seeing that one more time. John, you know, you did mention that Jawan Howard is a rookie coach, but I thought it was an excellent idea to bring in Phil Martelli uh, as his assistant. That's got to help him kind of overcome some of those bumps that young coaches come through. In general, how much of a help do you think he's going to be this season for them? Oh, I think a great help. I think that Phil Martelli the way things ended at, at St. Joe's, he deserved better. Phil Martelli deserved better at the end at St. Joe's. And, and there's no question, Billy Lang's going to do a good job there at, at St. Joe's. And that's a program with a rich tradition. Uh, but the reason for that rich tradition is a, is the guy named Phil Martelli. And I thought he deserved better at the end. And I think he's motivated. Motivated to show what he's made of at Michigan. This is a very interesting opportunity for him. And Michigan's got the the pieces to be a team that factors into top half, top four of the Big Ten, potentially. I mean, that's that's how good this team can be, I think. So that's a great ad. Credit to Jawan Howard for coming in. And I think a lot of young head coaches or guys that are just jumping into a program are scared sometimes to bring in the seasoned vet 
to be a guy that you can have as a sounding board. Who better to bring in than Phil Martelli? If there's a guy who knows how to win and who actually has won with less, what do you think he could do with more? John, I got a follow-up question for you as well. I want to go back to that reference of who might match up against Livers. You uh, you immediately said that the matchup should uh, migrate towards Sandro picking up the defensive assignment. However, I want to kind of parallel back to the NCAA tournament game against Wofford when we had a difficult time matching up against Cameron Jackson. I think Jackson and Livers both have similar body types, that 6'7", bruising but athletic type, you know, four that can stretch you. Sandro hasn't done well with those kind of guys. I, to me... I think the better matchup that Seton Hall needs to take advantage of is putting a guy like Jared Roden on a, on a guy like Livers and then once in a while sliding Sandro back over to the five. I know he's not comfortable there, but Willard really hasn't rolled out that type of lineup yet this year, and Tom and I both thought we would see it more often and give once in a while, depending on matchup situations, the Twin Towers a, a chance to take a, a breath on the bench. Yes, I could see Kevin Willard going smaller where, where it lends itself. But by the same token, guys, what you don't want to do is have your five be dictated by what they're doing on the other side. It's sometimes that test of will. I think in that Wofford game, the Terriers made some shots that were just out of this world, out-of-body experience type shots. That team was destined to win that basketball game, and Seton Hall got beat by the three ball, and Jackson made some big plays as well. But to go back to, to this matchup, I agree with you. I do think that Roden's got to pick him up at times. What I'm curious to see is if Kevin Willard, when a team goes and says, okay, we're going to space you out. We're going to make you come out to us defensively and make you guard us out here. I want to see if Kevin Willard will go ahead and turn on them and say, I'm putting my two trees in. You're going to space me out. We're just going to lob it up to them and they're going to wham it home. Maybe those bigs aren't great enough off the catch inside right now. And you could say, John, what about the quick hands? You know what I say? I say high screen from Romaro Gill, Quincy McKnight around that. Who's waiting on the weak side? Another seven footer on Ike Obiagu. What a luxury. It's like an extra shot of tequila in the Bahamas. <laughs> I'll, I'll bet you a shot of tequila. We don't see that that often, but okay. No, I don't. I'm not saying that you're going to see it that often, but I think there's a chance you could see it. Every now and then. I okay. do think there's a chance. I'm not saying you'll see it that often. And I agree with you that Jared Roden, you know, he, he's got to step up at times where Sandro, uh, where Sandro can, can sometimes not guard that position. But here's the thing, guys. This is my statement of, of the podcast. For Seton Hall to be at their best this year, they need Sandro Mamoukelashvili to come on as an every game player. Not as a guy who doesn't, who is unable to guard that type of guy. I have to assume that Sandro Mamukelashvili is better off because he's taken those types of assignments against Wofford. And you have to remember, he's a junior now. The expectations are raised. But his first two years, he was kind of a deer in the headlights. I see him now as more of a solid contributor. Jared Roden's got a high ceiling. But I think in the here and now, this week, Sandro's got to be at his best. And he's got to find a way to match that level of a fight if he draws an Isaiah Livers or whoever it is he draws, if he draws one of those Gonzaga treats. Uh, you and I completely agree. Got to get Tom to to join that bandwagon, but all right, let's do this. Let me have one more. Agree with what I see, Mike. Wait, wait, wait. Here's here's what I want to jump in. No, no, no. Because this is awesome. This is what a podcast is about. This is what Left Coast Pirates is about. So, Tom, tell me your thoughts here. Let's go to Tom in San Diego. <laughs> My thoughts are 
People are desirous of Sandro to be good since he stepped on campus. Every time when he came on, immediately they were comparing him to Seton Hall greats, and I think we all know who I'm talking about. And the only thing he's got in common with Arturis is that he's got a last name that's hard to say. But they keep saying he's a stretch four. I haven't seen him shoot that well. I haven't seen him bang inside. I know he makes some good plays here and there, but mostly he dominates games where the competition is lowered. Really, the only big game I've seen him step up in is that last Villanova game last year, and he played great. And I want him to play great. But with all the expectations people put on his shoulders, I think it's unfair to the kid. So if we're going to, to do that, which I think there's some unfair ex- expectations for him, no question about that, and people proclaiming him as the, next, as the second coming of Artie is disrespectful to Artie. That said... Who then would you want to put in instead of him? Oh, I'm not saying you take the kid out. I'm saying that you've got to understand what you've got. I don't think he comes in as Robin. I think it's been very disrespectful. And actually, this is almost like a repeat because earlier when Mike and I were covering the Florida A&M game, I was saying it's been very disrespectful this season of the of Miles Kale's treatment so far. He was the second best player in that team last year, and he's getting four or five shots a game this year. He's being a forgotten men they're not working him into the system so as far as who are you going to put instead of him no i i think he's he's got to step up i just don't think his ceiling is high as other people think that it is well that also means then you just got to balance the burden of responsibility to the quincy mcknights the miles kale maybe roden starts to develop a 10 point a game type performance and if everybody gave you that consistent eight to 12 from those four other guys, I can live without having a defined Robin. As long as we don't have guys disappear and give you nothing for a given night. We have some guys completely, you know, vanish and give you a two point performance. Sandro can't have a game against FAMU where he gets one rebound. Those nights are just not acceptable. If the ceiling is going to be that high for this team. There's just something about this team offensively that seems to be all or nothing at times. And I think they've got to try to find a way to get out of that. Like the Michigan State game was a prime example of a Cassius Winston exits with foul trouble. Aaron Henry got banged up in that game. So you're sitting there thinking, okay, now's a golden opportunity for the offense to get going. Sometimes it doesn't matter who the other five are out on the court. It doesn't matter. Like it could have been Michigan State, could have been anybody. Look, look at Florida A&M on Saturday. They went on that run at the end of the first half, and you're thinking to yourself, what is it? I think they've got to avoid those types of spells, and number 13 cannot do it all. So what you're saying to yourself is, we need a number two. That's that's what you say to yourself. We need a number two guy. But you know what? There might just not be a number two guy. And in that case, you've got to be content with that, and you've got to be able to grind out what you can get. Now, here's the curious thing, and I'm interested to hear what you guys have to my, – my thought with this team at times is, like – Quincy McKnight did average 20 points a game at Sacred Heart. Would moving him off the ball in some capacities and having Nelson at the one help? I've been saying that forever, John. I just, I have. I mean, I, I want to get a better balance of the minutes in the backcourt. I know Kevin likes to give that time to back up Miles to Shavar, but I would prefer to see those minutes get allocated to Q, give Nelson the opportunity to maybe play 25 minutes a night, get more into the flow and rhythm of the game. And he's not doing that. When he when he's had the opportunity to get consistent minutes, i.e. the Villanova game and the Big East title, uh, the first half of the Wofford game, it was a revelation to see how well the offense moved and how comfortable he was. And I'm okay if Q plays off the ball. 
I don't want to see Q shooting as many threes, but I want to see Q put his head down and go to the basket when he's slashing, not trying to beat his guy off the dribble as a point guard. Well, I think that's another important thing to keep in mind with Seton Hall. They're a really good slashing team, but you got to do it. You got to do it to be a good slashing team. So not falling into three-pointers. Like, I'll say it right now. Miles Powell's a great three-point shooter. You're not going to beat Oregon in the battle for Atlantis by getting into a three-point competition. I mean, you might. It's college basketball. You might. But let's face it. Oregon's a better three-point shooting team. Limit them on the perimeter. Slash. Get to the hole. Make Peyton Pritchard work. That, that, those are the keys to this game. And Kevin Willard trusts Quincy McKnight with all his heart. That's, that's true. No cliche there. He has a high level of trust for Q. And I think that Nelson is not totally there yet defensively, but perhaps the only way that he gets there is if he gets more minutes because you just get more comfortable as a player. So let's see how things get managed. Let's keep in mind what the coach has done to this point. This is a big week for this program because I think all the way back, I mean, I, I hate to uh, to pull at the, the strings here, but I'm just saying, back in the 88-89 season, what did they do? They went to Alaska, and everybody comes out of that thinking, oh, my gosh, this team is for real. I think everybody thinks it's for real, but they've got to back it up now with some Ws this week, and we're going to really find out here in the Bahamas just how good they are because of the consistent level of competition. You know what's interesting about the 89 team, John, though? Give me to cut you off there. John Morton was their starting point guard early in that season, and they made a change midway through. And I'm not saying Q is going to slide over and replace Miles, but maybe Q becomes that super sub six man. And you let Nelson run the point at some at some point in the season in order to have that offensive continuity. I'm not saying we completely eliminate the defensive stopper that Q is, but he should kind of manage that on a night-to-night basis relative to what the team needs. That, that's just my take. It's an interesting take, and I, I think that, that there's there's reason to look at that and think, okay, well, you know, what could they do a point guard? Here's the other thing that must be brought up. Remember that a head coach is also coaching with 2020-21 on his mind. And at some point, Anthony Nelson and Jared Roden have to, in fact, take the step that you want them to take to when you pass the torch, I'm not saying that they're Miles Powell. I understand that the program's going to have a lot of retooling to do next year. But last year, you were picked eighth. And by the end of the season, you could go up against anybody. That's going to be the goal next year as well. And they believe they've got the caliber of talent between Samuel, Roden, and Nelson. Sometimes you insert guys in weeks like these for certain reasons. To find out how good you're going to be in the future and to find out who you're going to need to pick up on the recruiting trailway. Well, John, ironically, we got one team we didn't break down down yet, the Bahamas. Iowa State is the last team in the uh, in the tournament that's matched up in the first round against Michigan State. What I find ironic is Seton Hall is going to play Iowa State right after the Bahamas tournament is over. But so far, Iowa State lost at Oregon State by six. Oregon State was predicted to finish in the bottom 10, excuse me, 10th out of 12 teams in the Pac-12 preseason. So far, they've got a balanced offensive attack with six players averaging eight and a half to 12 and a half points a game. Assuming that the Pirates could match up with Iowa State in that third place or a loser's bracket third game, how much of an impact does that make for when they have to go on to play in Hilton Coliseum? Does that make it harder? Does that give them a look and make it easier? What's your take? Oh, I think it makes it harder because you have to go to Hilton Coliseum. Having to see a team again, regardless of the result. Okay, if you beat them, now now it becomes a revenge game for Iowa State. If you lose to them, 
Where's your confidence when you have to go to their place? It's probably not in a great spot. It's a very unique dynamic. A lot of coaches are going to say, oh, it doesn't matter, or we're on to the next game. Uh, it, it matters. And look, this is how the deck of cards was laid out. The Big East made this with the Big 12. They made this schedule for what is being termed the battle between the Big East and Big 12 in its first year. And so these two teams happen to end up going up against each other potentially twice. Here's the thing about Iowa State. They're a team that's picked seventh in the Big 12. But what you know about the Big 12 is that they've got seven or eight NCAA tournament contenders. It could be that type of league like the Big East this year. If these two teams meet, I think what comes to mind is you've got to hang on to the basketball for Seton Hall. It could be your, it would be your third game in as many days. And that's the one thing about Atlantis that must be taken into account, guys. Charleston Classic, Myrtle Beach Invitational. A lot of these tournaments, more times than not, they have one gap day. Seton Hall, some of their recent tournaments, let's think about it. Let's think about them here recently. Now, the NIT, they played uh, back-to-back nights. Well, last, year, last year, they had a gap day before the Miami Championship game. Last year in the Wooden Legacy. Uh, the Advocare Invitational in Orlando, the Charleston Classic before that. You think about some of their recent events – they have had that gap day. I'm not saying that that makes a huge difference or not, but third game in three days against a team that likes to turn you over. Iowa State doesn't shoot the three ball well, and they don't have a great score. Like, their leading scorer, Rasir Bolden's, Bolden's at 12.5 points a game, and then Solomon Young's at 12 a game. They've got four and double figures, so they're deep, but they don't have a great score. They don't have a monster rebound. They're, they're actually getting out-rebounded on the season statistically. So I look at Iowa State. I think it's a very manageable game for the Pirates on a neutral floor. I think that will be quite the test inside Hilton Coliseum come December 8th. I've got my calendar marked for that one. So we reviewed all the teams, John. And again, we're going to put you on the spot. How do you think this tournament plays out? It's such a great question. I think Seton Hall takes down Oregon. I do. I think that they go into the Gonzaga game. Remember I said Seton Hall, Oregon could be the de facto title game in this. Gonzaga hasn't been tested in a big way yet, and I think Seton Hall's seven-footers could really give them a test that Gonzaga might not expect from Seton Hall going in. I think that Seton Hall wins that game, too, over Gonzaga and makes it to the battle for Atlanta's championship game. From there, North Carolina, in, in my mind, it would be house money. Of course, you want to knock off North Carolina. It's a young team. The fact of the matter is this. I've got the winner of Seton Hall, Oregon, winning the battle for Atlantis. I look at the Seton Hall, Oregon matchup. I think it's winnable for the Pirates because I see an Oregon team that's oriented in the perimeter, on the perimeter rather, and I think that Seton Hall, their perimeter defense is going to be ready for that. And on top of that, on these types of stages, you see different players rise to the occasion. I think you'll see that this week, like a Jared Roden did last year. You could see those types of players rise. You've got to hang on to the basketball. Oregon doesn't force a whole lot of turnovers. And for the Pirates, it's Powell versus Pritchard. I would I would pick Powell. Pritchard's outstanding. And they've got a couple of playmaking guards. They know how to dial it up from three. But if the Pirates play perimeter defense against Oregon, I think good things are going to happen. I think there's reason to believe that they could end up playing for a championship this week. Despite the field being so challenging, there's a path. There is an absolute path. All right, John. So one more hypothetical for you then. And you kind of already played into this narrative. If the Pirates were to win the tournament by running the table against Oregon, Gonzaga, and North Carolina, where would you see them in the polls on Monday 
regardless of how anybody else in the top 10 did. I think you're looking at a team that's in the top seven. That's, 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 that's five, five or six. Do they jump ahead of some of the other teams that are still without a loss due to the fact that they would have beat three teams in the they're top gonna, 11? Yeah, they're going to jump ahead teams. There's no question about that. I think you're looking at a team that, that gets up to potentially number five or six in the country. We'll see what other teams do. Remember, it's AP voters. I mean, at the end of the day, some guy in Oregon that's having Thanksgiving dinner with his family is not watching Seton Hall play Gonzaga on Thanksgiving Day. And it's unfair to expect him to. So I'm a firm believer that there shouldn't be an AP poll until uh, mid-December, early December. But it's a number, and it matters, and programs use it. Call it an old take by me or a stale take, but I think Seton Hall jumps up. If they have three top 11 wins, how could you not jump up into like at least the halfway mark of the top 10? That, that's what that says to me. John, you were gold last year. You're gold this year. We really can't thank you enough for jumping on with us today. We know your schedule is hectic. You're the hardest working man in college basketball, but you always seem to make time for us, man. We really appreciate it. Guys, anytime, anything for the Left Coast Pirates, it is a Seton Hall basketball podcast that stands in a class of its own. Happy Thanksgiving. John Fanta, everybody. Mike, this year we have the Classic down there in the battle for Atlantis in the Bahamas. Next year's field, next year's holiday tournament has already been decided, and we're going to Charleston. I like this tournament a lot. Let me, let me give you some background on, on the information for the 2020 Charleston Classic. Uh, the dates are November 19th, 20th, and 22nd. Here's why I like that. It feels like for the first time in like four years, we're not playing during Thanksgiving dinner. I can actually kick back and watch these games and not have the wife over my shoulder going, are you really going to sit there and watch that? Get, get back to the table. Uh, check, check the turkey. Uh, we can actually enjoy these games. I also like the fact that if you play the first, after you play the first two days, and let's say you're moving on to, you know, the, the championship game, you're getting a day of rest before you play that final third game. You're not playing three and three. You're playing three and four. I, I like that format. I also like the collection of teams that we're going to be going up against. So you obviously have the host, Charleston Southern. There is Penn State, Tennessee, Houston, VCU, Florida State, and Oklahoma State. Now, why I like those that collection of teams is because there's nobody in there on paper that jumps out to be a bona fide top 10 team in the country. You don't have your traditional blue bloods there, but you have some teams that could, with a good season, you know, be a fringe NCAA tournament team. You know, Tennessee has been pretty good. Yusuf has been pretty good of late. VCU and Florida State are kind of in that mix for like the, you know, the eight to 12 seed type range. You're going to have some quality opponents. We are not going to be a top 10 team next year on paper early on in the season. So this might be a good barometer relative to the skill set of players and talent that we have on next year's roster. You know, with how things happen in college basketball, you never know. Some of these teams may jump up. I don't know. I don't have really have much of an opinion on it. It's nice that we're staying in a time zone and we're not going to have some crazy start times like last year when they went out to the West Coast and ended up having the last game of almost every night. It It is an interesting collection. We'll, we'll see how it plays out, but... You know what? The way college basketball rolls, two or three of these teams may be big time. I mean, Houston has had a good couple seasons with Kelvin Sampson as his coach. Is he staying? Is he going? Is he going to keep getting the recruiting classes? I don't know. We'll see what happens. 
there, there's just respectable basketball names on that list, right? There, there are programs that have had basketball success. It's not like I'm sitting there picking on Rutgers going, oh, Rutgers is on this list. Maybe Rutgers is going to be an NIT team this year. No, there's all quality basketball programs there that have had success in a recent window of time. You know, like I said, we're not going to go into it because I don't know the players on these teams and who projects to be on those rosters for next year, but there's some quality basketball programs there. Let, let's wrap this up. Let, speaking of quality, Miles continues to chase that magical 24-94. Take it away. Well, Miles had 23 points against Florida A&M and is now up to 1776, which brings him within 13 of tying Walter Dukes for 10th all time. I wanted to throw a couple extra bullet points in here. So I, I did some analysis. We don't know what it's going to look like in the postseason. We're, we're projecting. Are they going to play six games, five games, four games? Oh, as he continues to put this output, uh, from the previous games from the week, I want to kind of illustrate what he's going to have to do the rest of the season relative to how many postseason games he might have to play. So right now he's averaging about 23 a game, right? If they play four postseason games in order to tie the record, he's got to average 24.7. If they play five postseason games, 23.2. And if they play six postseason games, which I think everybody would be ecstatic, 22.4. Based on those kind of breakdowns, how are you feeling about him breaking the record? So when we're saying postseason, we're including the Big East tournament and then the Big Dance, correct? That would be that would be correct. Yes. I'm still saying it's a crapshoot at this point. I mean, he's been he's been looking real good so far, and it seems like you know 22 points per game is, I mean, he's not he's going to eclipse that big time. But once you get into Biggie's play, you have a bad game here or there, which we haven't seen from Miles really yet. Who knows? I, I, I think it's way too close. I think it'll be amazing if it happens. I'll tell you this, Mike, and, and I, you know the Terry to hair fan than I am. I think he's the greatest player in school history. This may be, if Miles continues it, the greatest single season a Seton Hall player has put up. It, it very well could. I, I'm going to change my stance from where I was in the beginning of the season. I thought there was going to be more balance offensively. Haven't seen that yet. Thought we were going to see Miles distribute more when the situation presented itself. Kind of hasn't done that yet. Kind of been looking for his own. So far, I know it's only a, a small sample of five games, but the offensive tendencies and what we've seen for Miles, and this is not a, a knock in any way, I think he's going to kind of be bearing a bigger responsibility for the offensive load for this team, especially with the difficult slate of games that are coming up in the next six. And then on top of that, there, there's no rest. You play Prairie View, and then you immediately go into the Big East grind. If the burden of responsibility is on him to score the ball, yeah, I think you might see a 25 to 26. And I know you, you thought that that was a lofty number to put an expectation on him to try to match you know, Dougie Buckets for the individual scoring average for a season in Biggie's play, I think he's going to be pretty darn close to it. And if he's pretty darn close to it, this number in, is in reach, man. I'm, I'm changing my tune. It'll take a historic season, but you know what? So far, he hasn't disappointed. So, Mike, I'm excited. Turkey, big games in Bahamas. And as we always say, Mike, go Pirates. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please listen to our previous podcasts, which include interviews with former players, Mark Bryant, Marcus Tony L, Lavelle Sanders, Jerry Walker, and Shaheen Holloway. For Tommy Chilkaharski, I am Mike Dizzy Dizzyri, and you've been listening to 
left coast pirates. Thank <laughs> you.